the county, Sir Simon Barber, had been bought with land he had lost during the war. The others would not move a finger without him. From information Barber gave us, some were arrested. Including Luke, I said with relief. Scogman shook his head. Luke had disappeared. From that moment, the plan I had carefully constructed to bring my son to his senses and the two of us closer together fell to pieces. Although the uprising was a dismal failure everywhere else, Sir George Booth, an excellent soldier and well-liked in his county, managed to raise four thousand men and hold Cheshire and part of Lancashire for several weeks. This inspired Luke and a group of hotheads to try to take over an armory. It was a foolhardy project, the sort Cromwell used to dismiss with contempt as going for glory, not results. Scarcely more than boys, they were too young to have fought in the war, and were dying to distinguish themselves for their king. Two did. Several were wounded, including Luke. I made sure he was kept in a separate cell. I hired a coach and removed my ring, so only the jailer knew who I was, and with Scogman went there late one evening. It was hot and muggy. The stench of the jail hit us through the windows of the coach. We clamped nosegays of herbs tightly to our faces. "'You'll need those, sir,' the jailer said. "'Time of the year for jail fever. Found one of them dead in his cell this morning.' He spat reflectively as he selected a key. "'Unless it was the plague.' I silently cursed my stupidity. A fine lesson if Luke died from it. He had never been very well, ever since he'd suffered a bad burn to his face in the riots in London at the end of the war. Although she never said anything, I knew my wife Anne blamed me for not allowing them to shelter with her friend Lucy Hay, the Countess of Carlisle, because I suspected she was a royalist. "'Hurry, ma'am,' I said, almost snatching the key from the jailer. Then, when he was about to insert it in the lock, I stopped him putting a finger to my lips. Luke had a beautiful voice, which rang out like a church bell. What he was saying was the last thing I expected to hear. When love, with unconfined wings, hovers within my gates, and my divine Sarah whispers at the prison grates. There was more. It was a poem by the royalist poet Richard Lovelace, written in his cell. After lying entangled in Sarah's hair, the poet says, The very gods know no such liberty. A hollow knocking came from the cell next door, and one of Luke's fellow prisoners joined in. His voice was much more feeble, but its import just as determined, as they chanted that, when they sang about the glories of the king— The winds that curl the floods know no such liberty. I signaled to the jailer. Far from stopping them, the sound of the key redoubled their defiant chanting of the final line. There was so little light from the barred window, I could only see a shape sprawled on a stone bench. As the jailer opened the door further, the candles in a corridor sconce lit up his face. Few would have thought as father and son without the hook of the stone house nose. There the resemblance ended. 
At seventeen, the fresh, tight curves of his good cheek held a lofty arrogance that only a privileged upbringing on an estate like High Point gives a man. The raw, rippled skin of his burned cheek, which at first had made him a withdrawn child, now only emphasized that absolute assurance, as he realized people often took it as a badge of the war he had never fought in. Most people saw the same assurance in my face, but it was skin deep. Once I had believed in the Republic, as Luke believed in the King. I still did, but not with the enthusiasm of the child of the streets I had once been. Years of working with Cromwell, of looking for a form of government that would work without falling back on the army, had convinced me that power came first. If I looked in the mirror, which I seldom cared to, I saw a man who looked older than his thirty.